Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. It's a beautiful day in New York. We had probably one of the best weekends you could possibly have in terms of weather. My dad came up from Florida this weekend to stay with us, and I don't think he's ever going back. Uh, every single New York team won this weekend, which I think is pretty rare. Uh, we had the Giants, the Jets, the Yankees, and the Mets all win yesterday. So just everything's just going great here in New York. I hope it's going well for you too. Thanks for joining today. We're going to talk about one of my favorite topics and I can see we've got great attendance today uh, for this fun topic. This topic is about independent medical examinations and we're going to talk about when we should get them, um, when we should not get them, Okay, what we're looking for in an IME, um, how we can maybe get the best IME possible in our New York workers' compensation case. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, what's changing going forward. And I want to make this as practical as possible. So I'm going to talk about a couple interesting client questions I got over the last couple of weeks uh, and try to give people some good advice. Um, with the great resignation and the great migration away from New York, uh, more and more consistently it's coming up with challenges in getting qualified and useful independent medical experts uh, for claimants who have relocated, for example, to the sunny state of Florida where my dad lives uh, or other places. And how do we do that? How do we get a good IME? in other locations. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about that and um, I'm gonna to try to give everyone uh, my best advice. But the fun part of this, and the reason I always look forward to these webinars on Monday, um, is because these are completely and totally live. Uh, please ask me questions. Please challenge things that I say. If you say, hey, wait a second, what do you mean by that? Or that doesn't make sense. Or that doesn't accord with your experience. Uh, please type it in. Um, I will try to address as many questions as I possibly can. Uh, that's really one of the most fun aspects of doing this presentation. I will always say your first name so you know I'm, ask, I'm answering your question. I will then read your question for the whole audience uh, and then do my best to give you the best answer I can give you. So please, as we're going along, please type in your questions. Now, today I only have 12 slides, so this is not a long prepared uh, presentation because my approach to independent medical evaluations and the approach we take here at Lois is pretty straightforward with a couple little wrinkles. Um, and we're going to talk about that. Um, so please be typing in your questions as we go. Uh, and comments are welcome as well. And um, it really helps to make this more of a discussion rather than just a presentation. So when do we need to get an independent medical examination? And the answer is in New York a lot, right? Because uh, independent medical evaluations is one of the very few ways you have uh, to get some leverage or move a case along. Remember, the claimant gets to choose any physician they want to go to in New York as long as they are coded by the New York Workers' Compensation Board, which really is a very small bar. Do they go to good physicians? Nope. Uh, they go to physicians that their attorney is directing them to go to. And the point is to stay out of work for as long as humanly possible. And you know, you see some very bizarre medical behavior in this jurisdiction. And that is that the uh, claimant will continue to treat with a physician who's treated them for years for sprains, strains, minor injuries, not get any better, and who does not find that they are restoring any work capacity. And of course, this is being gamed. Now, unfortunately, because the, the claimant can choose any physician they want, we're left with the independent medical evaluation as uh, one of the few ways that we can create or obtain contradictory medical evidence, which we'll need to go into court to challenge the ongoing treatment course. And so unfortunately, in a typical New York workers' compensation case, you're not just getting an independent medical evaluation at the time that the claimant has reached MMI. Often, you're having to do it throughout the course of the case, and you'll do it for various reasons. First, because you're being directed by the court to do so. You're under court direction. Um, for perhaps permanency is an issue and the court actually will direct the parties to secure uh, their independent medical evaluations. 
Um, second time you'll need to get it is when the claimant has come forward with proof of permanent residual disability. That has to be submitted on a form C-4.3 in New York, which is a special form in which the doctor has to identify, for example, the body part for which permanent disability is being found, and then the nature and extent of the disability. So that's usually expressed as either a percentage in terms of a scheduled body part, that would be a hand, finger, foot, toe, eye, ear, or in the uh, uh, case of a non-scheduled body part, it would be an evaluation uh, utilizing the disability duration guidelines and expressed as both a severity ranking and an impairment amount. So uh, however that's going to be expressed, it would be submitted by the claimant on that C-4.3. Now, we shouldn't just always knee-jerk go out and get our own IME. Sometimes you'll look at the claimant's uh, figure for their, particularly the schedule loss of use, and you say, well, is this worth challenging? Maybe it isn't. Uh, because, of course, every independent medical examination is actually independent. You cannot control and direct uh, how the evaluator is going to make their determination. And so there is some element of risk that you should be thinking about in the context, particularly of scheduled loss of use permanency. All right. Uh, the next broad category when we're going to be getting an independent medical examination is when we need to address the um, uh, the claimant either reaching maximum medical improvement or we're trying to establish our right to a credit. Remember that in loss of wage earning capacities where the claimant's temporary disability has exceeded 130 weeks, we do have the right to demand a credit for the amount of the disability uh, that was paid to the claimant after they reached MMI. So we'd like to look at that 130 week time period as that right moment to go out and maybe secured opinion in regards to either uh, MMI or whether or not that credit should start accruing. Now the key here is that we are often getting an independent medical examination on the issue of maximum medical improvement. We all know what maximum medical improvement is. It's a medical plateau at past which there is no expectation of uh, restoration or where curative treatment has ended. However, while we all know the definition of maximum medical improvement, just remember that it's kind of like a unicorn. You know, everybody knows what a unicorn looks like. No one's ever seen one. It's relatively rare in this jurisdiction for the treating physician to find the claimant has reached maximum medical improvement. Again, why is that? Well, it's because the physician has been selected by the claimant or more commonly by their attorney who advertises on a bus stop bench and during daytime TV. Uh, because they know that physician will never find the person to have reached maximum medical improvement and or to continue on treatment courses despite the fact that there is no restoration of function or reduction in impairment. The next broad category of time that we're going to be obtaining an independent medical examination is when we need to challenge ongoing care. Um, additionally, how about new body parts coming into these cases? So remember that uh, most treatment in New York is covered by medical treatment guidelines, and these are established evidence-based pathways to provide care to the claimant. Uh, when the claimant's physician wants to depart from those established uh, pathways of care, uh, we can challenge that, and we can uh, make a defense based on the guidelines themselves, and we can also get an independent medical examination. Of course, uh, New York is famous for consequentials. Uh, very rarely does a case that starts with a hand, finger, foot, or toe stay as a hand, finger, foot, or toe. Because remember, if you hurt your left hand two years ago, eventually you're going to bring a claim saying you also hurt your right hand from an overuse injury. Okay, So consequentials come in. Another popular consequential is uh, a throw-in for a psychiatric disorder or illness. Uh, a claimant who a year after uh, the accident starts claiming now they have PTSD or anxiety or other conditions which they now claim are disabling. Those are throw-ins, right? They're throwing in something new. Uh, and oftentimes we'll have to get an independent um, evaluation in order to challenge that consequential body part or illness. Most commonly, again, I see is anxiety or PTSD. And then the last reason that we'll obtain uh, independent medical evaluations is to challenge the claimant's theory of causal relationship. And this is pretty related to the consequential injury one, uh, but it's where uh, maybe an injury is progressing or deteriorating or after some treatment has been provided, we then realize because we've done an ISO or a claims history search that, wait a second, this is all pre-existing. Now we've gone and developed new medical records. 
uh, from the prior loss, right? So how many times um, uh, does the claimant claim that they have a back injury and then we run an ISO on them and discover, oh, this is their sixth claim for a back injury. And when we go back and obtain those prior medical records, and particularly I want to look at the diagnostics, the radiographic images, the MRIs, and then present those to my evaluating physician, they say, wait a second, the MRI is exactly the same as it was six years ago when they had their prior workers' compensation claim for the same body part, right? So very useful in challenging causal relationship. So these are the general times that we're going to secure an independent medical evaluation. All right. What am I looking for? What does Greg Lois look for in an independent evaluator? Um, and just remember, in New York, we have some very specific constraints, which I'll talk about in a bit. But those constraints are that we really cannot communicate directly with the evaluator and attempt to persuade them or change their opinion. Also, once the evaluator has reached their opinion in regards to the need for treatment, consequential body parts, whether or not the claimant has reached the maximum benefit of care, MMI, or has a permanent residual disability or impairment, once they've reached that opinion, we don't really have the opportunity to intervene, discuss, change, persuade, manipulate uh, that decision before it has to be shared with all parties. Because in our system, uh, the evaluator has 10 days to issue their evaluation of the claimant, and they must share it with all parties uh, and through the same method of transmission on the same day and the same time. So that's what happens next. So what am I looking for? When I'm selecting an evaluator, what's the first thing I care about? Well, the first thing I want is good qualifications. What does good qualifications mean to me? Well, if it's an orthopedic case, I want someone who's board certified in orthopedic surgery. And more than that, I want someone who's board certified in the type of orthopedic surgery or has had a fellowship uh, or other additional um, training specific to the body part that's at issue in my case. We're always gonna have this challenge when we present independent medical evaluator whose opinion differs from the treating physician. And the challenge is, sounds just like this, you ready? Uh, judge, they saw him one time and says he doesn't need the surgery, but judge, the treater's seen him 25 times and thinks he does. Uh, and so in that instance, I want to be able to argue that, hey, my independent evaluator, sure, he only saw him one time, but this is the expert on this. They are board certified, and they have had a fellowship. They've had training. They've had experience. They've done the same procedure hundreds of times. I want to bolster and defend and um, persuade the judge with the credentials of my evaluator. Uh, the next thing is I'm looking for is a competent evaluation, right? These evaluations, by the way, when I'm talking about a physical examination, doesn't take an hour. It doesn't take 30 minutes. Really, a competent evaluation is anywhere from 5 to perhaps 15 minutes. But to be frank with you, I don't think I've seen an independent medical examination where the physical examination took much longer than that. I think that the uh, claimant is generally in the doctor's office for much longer than that, filling out questionnaires, answering questions, um, being moved to an exam room, all those things. But the actual time with the evaluator probably averages a little bit less than 10 minutes in general. And I think that's fine. There's uh, really not much more that the evaluator is doing than doing some range of motion testing, some strength testing, some dynamic movement testing, uh, certainly, hopefully, some credibility testing, right? We're looking for some distraction testing. Uh, so we really don't need a very long evaluation, particularly where there's only one or two body parts. How long does it take to ask someone to extend or abduct their arm or shoulder, to measure it, to use the goinometer, to compare it to the disability duration guidelines? The answer is not a lot of time. Now, again, uh, this is often attacked uh, by the um, opposing counsel, and they'll say, Judge, this examination was only six minutes long or seven minutes long. Yeah, that's great. How long does it really take uh, to test someone's range of motion in an ankle injury? And the answer is not long. So we're looking for a competent examination. Uh, we're looking for some reproducibility. We're looking for a uh, reliance on objective findings. Um, I'm not uh, excited about independent medical evaluators who merely parrot the claimant's complaints over and over again, which are often very subjective in nature and uh, are usually very pain limited and, and a lot of um, personal experience complaints, we're really looking for an objective evaluation. I prefer when the evaluator has given the claimant a full questionnaire 
these are prepared social history and uh, psychosocial questions asking the claimant what they're doing, you know, some basics. Are you working? What are you doing? How much are you doing? What are you able to do in your activities of daily living? What are you not able to do? I prefer for the evaluator to have that information. Most claimants counsel will advise their clients, absolutely do not answer any questions about anything except for your workplace injury or point to the body part that's injured. Um, they've gone so far as to hire or send paralegals with their um, claimants when they are being evaluated. Uh, so I like a full questionnaire. We do require it and request it. Uh, sometimes it is refused uh, by the claimant. Next. <clears throat> I'm looking for simple, clear reports. I don't like reports that are 20 pages long and full of jargon. I'm looking for a clear report. The report should specifically identify, here's what I examined, here's what my objective findings are, here's what my diagnosis is, and here's what my treatment plan or my finding of MMI is. And if necessary, here's the degree of permanent residual disability. But I'm looking for simple, simple. Uh, most injuries are run-of-the-mill. You see them hundreds and hundreds of times. I don't need long discussions of anatomy, uh, long dissertations about uh, causal relationship. I really want things straightforward and simple. And then when I'm selecting my evaluators, I'm thinking to myself, do I want to put this person on the stand? How clear is their testimony going to be? Clear testimony to me is uh, when they were, are testifying, they stay within the four corners of their report. Okay, We do not want our evaluator when they're on the stand uh, going off on adventures or answering hypotheticals. Because remember, uh, opposing counsel gets a vote here, right? They get to cross-examine our evaluating physician. And they have this one tried and true method, this one uh, avenue of questions that they love to employ. And I can see this avenue of questions coming from a mile away. And when it starts happening, it's my job as defense counsel to stop it, to address it. Uh, but it's a very uh, pernicious and powerful uh, cross-examination technique. Essentially, what they want to do is get your evaluating physician to stop testifying about this case. And what they want them to do is testify about hypothetical cases and hypothetical situations. What they want to do is get the evaluator to depart from the four corners of their report. And so they will ask pernicious questions that start with a number of new counterfactuals in posed as part of the question. So they'll say things to the evaluator like, well, you found that his range of motion, uh, he had a full range of motion in his shoulder abduction. Is that true? Oh, yes, that's true. That's what I found. Well, if you had known that he was, after he did that evaluation in your office, he was in so much pain the next day, he couldn't lift his hand and even touch the top of his head anymore. Would that change your opinion as to the degree of disability? That's a dangerous question, right? It assumes a new fact, it makes up a fact, and then it challenges our evaluator to react to that fact, right? The other uh, avenue that these sometimes take is they'll say, and, and again, these are posed as hypotheticals. Uh, they are hypotheticals, I should say, but they're not. They're posed as a, a fact question. They'll say something like, well, uh, the day before or the day he came to your evaluation, the claimant took his pain meds that day. Uh, so knowing that he was on his pain medications uh, and he demonstrated a full range of motion, um, isn't it true that he can have a range of motion, but only when he's on these pain medications that are impairing and of themselves? You know, they go down these avenues where they are suggesting a hypothetical question to your evaluator to try to get them to change or depart or start to answer hypotheticals. Again, they often sound like, if you had known that, or did you know the claimant XXXXX, and they'll give them, uh, again, a counterfactual statement. As defense, our job is to stop that, right? Because that's a hypothetical, and our objection, the one we can raise on the record is, objection calls for speculation right because that's they're asking the evaluator to speculate and that's what we do not want to have from our evaluator so we're really thinking when we're selecting the evaluator what is this person going to testify like what can we expect and that's going to be based on our experience of the evaluator all right second question uh, or second thought is what can we send to the evaluator right because i've already told you that our contact with the evaluator has to be quite limited Every communication I have with the evaluator or the risk professional if the adjuster is setting up the evaluation is copied to not just the other side, not just opposing counsel, but also to the board. So you have to be very thoughtful and careful about what you send to your evaluator. 
sure, we all want to be very persuasive, but we have to make sure that what we're telling evaluators is 100% true, okay? Uh, now, as an attorney, this is tough, okay? But uh, we try, okay? So the idea here is, and the reason it has to be 100% true is because remember, my adversary, again, they get a vote. They get to cross-examine the, um, the IME doctor. And if anything we've told the IME doctor is not true, it will be caused to set aside the IME doctor's opinion or at least find them not credible, right? And the judge will not uh, ascribe must, much weight to an evaluation that's based on false information. So how do we do this? And, and I think the best way to um, prepare the evaluator is with a very strong, well-written cover letter. In fact, I think the cover letter is table stakes. Um, when I'm interviewing and vetting new clients, one of the things I tell them is we want to write cover letters. We want to control and direct the IME. If you're not good with that, we're probably not going to have a wonderful relationship going forward because I'm going to be very annoyed and you're going to be very annoyed. So I think the cover letter is table stakes. And if you're not doing it, it's the best way you can get the best results from your evaluator. Um, now, not just any cover letter. Because I've seen ones that are just like, hey, please examine the claimant. Tell me what you think. Thank you. You know, good luck on your journey. We want to be very specific in what we're directing to the evaluator in that cover letter. Really specific. You know, um, when we send ours with a medical index or with reference to specific medicals, I'm pointing out the medicals that are objective, you know, typically the diagnostics or the post-surgical reports where we're going to expect to see some real objectivity in the evaluation. Um, it's okay to be persuasive a little bit in your cover letter, but don't go overboard because, you know, persuasive can, um, you know, sort of transition to, uh, you know, uh, leading the evaluator to say things that you want to hear but are not necessarily true. And that's just not going to hold up on cross-examination. So you have to be very thoughtful about that cover letter. Um, second thing is I love a questionnaire. Um, some IME physicians will do a questionnaire as part of their practice. Uh, but we're looking for a full questionnaire that's asking questions not just about the workplace injury. I'm also looking at uh, activities of daily living, what they claim they can or cannot do, volunteer activities. We really want the questionnaire to be pretty robust. How did you get here today? Did you drive? Do you still have a license? You know, I'm very interested in these claimants who claim to be completely and totally disabled but have no trouble uh, getting to every single medical appointment driving themselves. It's how disabled are you? You can clearly do some activity. All right, the next step thing is how about some non-medical documentation, right? Uh, what does that mean? You know, so many times the claimant will go and tell the physician, particularly in an occupational exposure or repetitive injury case, oh, I work in this warehouse, you know, I moved six tons of material a day, you know, six tons, that's, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds, I would un unload three trucks a day with all, all these pallets, and really explain that this is a, you know, very difficult job. Well, if we're not explaining to the independent medical evaluator, here's their job description, they're doing that with a forklift or a pump jack or an electric pump jack or, you know, there's affordances or they're working as part of a team. It can really help the evaluator sort of test the credibility of the claimant. But we want to be very specific. What is the job duties? What are the, if it, and particularly where we're able to offer light duty to an injured worker, um, giving a very specific description. Here's the light duty job. Here are the hours it would entail. Here's where they'd be working. Here's what they would be doing. Here's the equipment they'd be asked to use, grasp, kneel, stand, lift, bend. You know, going through all of the aspects of the employment to really give your evaluator a very good idea. So you're not just limited to medical information that you send to the evaluator. And this leads to the last part, which is I love to send surveillance video to my evaluators. Now, recognize that once you've sent surveillance video to your evaluator, it's out there, it's in the record. And that's, as I've already explained, because everything I'm sending to my evaluator, I have to send to opposing counsel, and I have to send to the judge of compensation, I have to send it to the board. So this isn't where I would deploy my surveillance, my covert, particularly covert surveillance, um, which has the uh, potential to really impact the case in terms of fraud or credibility. But this is absolutely where I use my surveillance video. And, and you know what, we've used this to great effect in cases where the claimant has come back to work for us, right? Maybe they're working for us in a light duty capacity or a full duty capacity, and they're seeking a scheduled loss of use award. Because remember, in New York, uh, even though the system is supposedly a wage loss state, it 
for scheduled loss of use injuries, it's an impairment state. So they can come back to you, they can be working full-time, full duty, and get an award for $100,000 for loss of use of their arm. And, and we want to explain to the IME doctor, hey, um, just so you know, they're back at work at the same position, they're doing the same job, they're, use, they're asking for overtime and getting overtime. Oh, and here's a video from inside the employment, you know, because we have a loss control video system. Here's them loading and unloading trucks all day with absolutely no impairment, no problems at all. You know, that's the kind of video that, uh, you know, could be covert, might be non-covert, uh, that we would want to share with the evaluator because it would certainly have a big impact on coloring the evaluator's opinion as to the person's workability, uh, the actual restrictions, if any, and of course their functional capacity. Now, as an entertaining side note, once I've done this with my own evaluator, I like to take that same video and I'll send it to the treating physician and say, hey, uh, you're probably going to be asked to testify in this case. Here's some video. Here's of your guy working. Take a look at it. Uh, been at this 21 years. I have. I can tell you. I can probably count on one hand how many times the actual treating physician has looked at that video. They just don't do it, uh, which makes a very fertile ground for cross-examination. And you know, then I can make the argument to the judge. Well, hey judge, um, hello. Uh, my evaluator watched this guy work for you know 30 minutes or an hour. The treater has no idea, in fact, refused to watch the video that I provided to him. It's very compelling to the judge of compensation. Um, now, just remember, again, um, be thoughtful. If you've got great surveillance video of the person really working, really doing things that exceed, that go to credibility or maybe a fraud allegation that you could bring in a case, I would still keep that in your back pocket. But there's always an opportunity to use some of that not-so-great surveillance video. And look, I'm sure that there's some surveillance professionals watching this right now. Um, you guys do a great job, but you know a lot of the video I get is the person just taking out the trash, they're carrying out the garbage, they're smoking a cigarette, they're buying lottery tickets. Nothing amazing, uh, but might be useful for the evaluating physician. The last thing to keep in mind when we're talking about uh, the evaluating physician is I am extremely limited by the workers' compensation court rules and how I can prepare my evaluator to testify. Again, I am not allowed to meet with my evaluator and talk about the case before they testify or before they issue their report. And again, this makes sense because the goal here is to get a truly independent evaluation. However, it really hurts our case in terms of preparation. And for this reason, it's very important to select a physician who A, you've got good experience with, B, you know testifies well, because you're not gonna get that opportunity uh, that we can sometimes do in other states. For example, I practice in New Jersey. I can hang out with my evaluator, we can play golf and talk about the case for four hours straight, and that's not an undue influence. In New York, that would be strictly prohibited, and I'm not allowed to do that. So we have to be thoughtful about the ethical and the rule um, that we have to follow in New York. All right, lots of downsides then to independent medical examinations, right? So some of them are you can't privately communicate with them. Um, everybody gets the results. The results don't go into Greg's back pocket and I only use them if I want. Um, and if the uh, evaluator does a really bad job or maybe they're not well directed and I it's a right elbow case and at the end of the report I read six pages of, of of right elbow information. They don't even talk about the right elbow. They talk about the left elbow. I'm like, great, we got to go fix this. And the only way to do that is through an addendum process, which is really not so great. The other thing that's not useful about it is quite slow. I mean, uh, these evaluators get booked out. You're booking evaluators far into the future. You've got an issue in the case now, and it's going to take you 60 or 90 days to get your evaluation back. So this is very, very slow. And the last thing that we don't really talk about because we can't control this is it does require the claimant to cooperate. The claimants love to cancel IMEs. Uh, it's my sister's brother's husband's dog's uh, dog walker's birthday, so I can't go to the evaluation that day, right? They're dragging this out. The same claimant who's dragging out 45 days in between their doctor visits is trying to avoid the examination. And so uh, it, this does require their cooperation in showing up. And then it requires their cooperation during the physical part of the examination and telling the truth. Are they always doing that? Well, the answer is we know not because when we put covert surveillance on them that takes place on the same days of the independent medical examination, we see things that are hilarious. The person who comes out of the doctor's office with a cane and a neck brace, you know, pops the trunk of their car, throws in the cane, takes off the neck base, throws it right in, you know, go off and play volleyball for the rest of the day. 
you know, those stories are apocryphal and funny, but they actually do happen, and it's because the claimant is being coached not to cooperate. Don't believe me? Go on YouTube and just type in there, what to do in my IME, and you'll find dozens, if not hundreds of videos prepared by attorneys coaching their clients on what to do and not to do so that they portray themselves the way they want to be portrayed in their independent medical examination. The last thing that's a very big downside to the IME process in New York is that it is like crazily um, full of pitfalls and potential uh, uh, traps. Um, the board requires specific documents sent to the doctor on specific forms at specific due dates and times. If the doctor does his evaluation or her evaluation and then doesn't turn it in on the 10th day to all parties, well, it's defective and they can throw it out. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons that our independent medical evaluation can be thrown out or precluded is the term um, when it does not meet uh, one of the statutory or rule requirements. And these rules are as uh, picky as what kind of paper and, and the format that the uh, 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 IME report is turned in at. So it's really ridiculous. Uh, and for that reason, there is a risk that you can go through all this time and expense and get an independent medical examination, and then at the time you're ready to utilize it in court, uh, the opposing party says, well, judge, it's true that the IME took place. We admit that we had notice, um, but the claimant had five treating physicians, and the report was issued on the 10th day to myself, to the court, to opposing counsel, and four of the five treating physicians, but the fifth didn't get it. And for that reason, this report is invalid. And I've seen judges throw it out for reasons as really irrelevant as that, but that's what the court rule says. So you gotta be very thoughtful about the fact that, you know, there is some risk. Now, depending on how well this is prepared, is the risk non-existent? Well, it should be low, but I'm still seeing about one in 15 or one in 20 IMEs being subjected to a preclusion defense. So that's something to be mindful of. All right, missed IMEs. That's another fun thing that happens unbelievable amount in this jurisdiction. Um, generally speaking, when the claimant misses an IME, and they will come up with any s excuse, right? I mean, during COVID-19, it was like, well, someone coughed near me two weeks ago, so I'm not going. Um, generally speaking, the courts will always allow them at least one more bite at the apple. So if they miss an independent medical examination, uh, the court, uh, you, you should generally, my opinion would be, go ahead and reschedule it for another date. Um, because we pretty much know the judge of compensation is going to allow that to happen. All right, functional capacity evaluations. Can they be forced in New York? So I love functional capacity evaluations, particularly in some of the claims where they're more subjective uh, or they're based on pain complaints, you know, things like RSD, CPRS, things like low back claims, neurologic injuries. You know, I like a functional capacity in those types of uh, cases. So um, we cannot force the claimant to go to a functional capacity evaluation. But if our IME says, look, in order for me to determine this person's actual work capacity, I need a functional capacity evaluation, the IME can request it, and then we can ask that the claimant go to attend the um, functional capacity evaluation. The IME then must review the functional capacity evaluation. And if you're doubting that this rule exists, it actually exists in the form of a board memorandum that was issued. So there is some um, precedent for this. I like getting a functional capacity evaluation because generally speaking, they're extremely objective and they're really uh, also give an excellent opportunity for distraction testing or credibility testing. Now the rules say, that if we get a functional capacity evaluation, we do not have to pay for the claimant to get their own functional capacity evaluation. But if the claimant wants to get their own to challenge the results of ours, they can do it, but the money, the, the cost of that comes out of their own pocket. And that's why I like functional capacity evaluation, you know, particularly in big cases or cases with a lot of exposure, because I know my opposing side is probably not gonna get their own functional capacity evaluation because they don't wanna spend the money to do it which means it's my functional capacity evaluation versus nothing. So I like that a lot. All right, New York also allows for us to get records reviews instead of IMEs. And I think there's a lot of good points or times when we should be thinking about that, okay? Think about it in circumstances where maybe a physical examination is not necessary, right? 
Um, think about it when you're really challenging the need for additional surgery or treatment and you just need an advisory opinion and you're really saying, I don't know if this is going to be beneficial or not. Uh, you know, I'm, look, I, I play a doctor on TV, but I'm not one. Uh, so sometimes it's useful to get that extra opinion. And the good um, parts of a records review is you're doing this in the background. So you can use it as an advisory opinion. You never have to file it with all the parties, right? The second time you might want to think about that being useful is, hey, I don't want to go and spend the time, money, blood, and treasure to get an independent medical examination at this time because that could come out against me. So maybe I should go and do a records review first and really get an idea of whether this um, suggested treatment path uh, is going to be beneficial to the claimant or not. And then if the records review comes back and says, yeah, this would be something that you should challenge and it's valid and you shouldn't do it, then maybe you say to yourself, okay, I will keep that in my back pocket and I will go and get an independent medical examination. I also like them, you know, I, and I think the examples I'm giving are really where there are issues of treatment, right? Where, hey, you can just look through the medical records, see what's been beneficial or not, and then, um, you know, generally make your determination as to whether or not you want to approve or challenge that ongoing medical care. I really don't like uh, records reviews when the issue is causal relationship. And those issues where it's going to be credibility or there's going to be an issue about pre-existing nature of the injury, I'm generally going to want to prefer to have an independent medical examiner because I want someone who have that gravitas and the credibility of saying, yes, I performed my own physical examination. I met with this person. I reviewed the records myself. That's generally what I'm going to ask for. I also don't generally recommend records reviews when it is time for permanency. I, again, think that an objective, independent physical examination is very valuable in regards to permanent residual disability or impairment. And for that reason, I'd prefer to have an independent medical examination. Now, before I jump into your questions, because that's the time that we're at, I just want to give you another example and just some thoughts, because um, one of the big challenges we've had recently, and I've gotten a couple client questions about, have been claimants who have moved to out of state. They've moved to Pennsylvania, or as I call it, Pennsylvania, or they've moved to Florida. That's really the common one. And uh, again, when we're doing an independent medical examination in another state, you can do it. You can use another state's doctor. You can do that all you want, but they have to deploy, or I'm sorry, apply the New York State Disability Duration Guidelines and the New York State Medical Treatment Guidelines. And I'm sorry, but most physicians in Florida are simply not conversant with the New York State Disability Duration Guidelines. That's how we measure and judge impairment or permanent disability. And they're not familiar with the New York uh, Medical Treatment Guidelines. New York does not follow, for example, the AMA guidelines for determining impairment, many states do. They have their own system that they develop because they're New York and they just wanted to, okay? So that's a challenge. So here's some ideas. First idea is you've got an out-of-state IME. Man, this is really the time to invest in a very good cover letter. And a really good cover letter would also include the pages from the disability duration guidelines that apply to your case. You know, so you're saying, hey, hey, doctor, we're asking you to evaluate this claimant. It's a low back injury. Here's the 22 pages from the disability duration guidelines that tell you what you have to examine and what um, your findings should conform to uh, for this type of injury, right? So that, that's something you should be thinking about. Um, you can help shape that with the independent medical exam. I'm sorry, with the cover letter to your independent medical exam. The other thing I've seen too is uh, recently was brought to my attention a psych case. It's a, it's a case where the claimant's alleging psychiatric disability that moved to another state. And my client just had a real tough time uh, identifying an independent medical evaluator. They finally did. The independent medical evaluator did something very strange I've never seen before. They did an independent medical evaluation from a psychiatric standpoint. And then when we said, okay, what's that based on? Can you send us the testing that you conducted and the evaluation that you did and the notes from your evaluation that supports your finding? And the doctor said, sorry, that's covered by uh, confidential patient privilege in this state and I can't provide that to you. And we're like, what? No. Uh, in cases like that, and particularly in psych cases, I would tell you this is a great opportunity to do a video independent medical examination, right? New York has fully embraced telehealth. They've fully embraced the claimants who go to the doctor by phone. So embrace that on the other side. Get a telehealth 
psychiatric evaluation, right? That's a, an evaluation where, you know, the physical exam is really not that important if, if it's been done at all. And, uh, you know, the evaluator can, can be situated in New York and do their evaluation over video and, you know, who's fully conversant with our New York guidelines, who understands our system here and has testified for us in the past. So that's just an idea uh, or something you can deploy that I've been seeing coming up more and more um, since people have moved away uh, from the hellscape that is New York. All right. Uh, I'm hoping there's some good questions. Let me dive into those right now. Let's see what we got. Oh, man, we have a lot. Okay, we have a lot. This is fun. Okay, I'm going to try to answer as many as I can. These are a lot of questions. Wow, this is the most thing I've ever seen. Um, okay, Stephanie says, hey, Greg, I heard in New York you can now implement alternative dispute resolution and direct medical providers to the injured worker. How do you in implement this? So uh, it's sort of true, not true. Yes, um, uh, there can be an alternative dispute resolution process. Uh, in fact, uh, there are currently construction projects that have um, gone to an ADR model uh, within the um, the construction process or project. Uh, in fact, we were the, the firm that was retrained, retained to train all of the mediators in that ADR system that's been implemented. However, um, there is not generally a, a, a broadly applicable ADR program in New York because it requires both the consent of the unions, for example, labor and the employer to implement that. There is no self-help ADR. You cannot simply direct the claimant into an ADR system that they are not um, already agreed to do. So in general, there is not an ADR diversionary system that you can put your claimants into. Um, but you did say, uh, can you direct them to medical providers? And the answer is yes, you can direct medical providers in New York if you create a PPO, okay, which is allowed under the New York rules. The problem with the PPO the, um, um, creation and implementation is that the PPO rules for the workers' compensation system are that the claimant must use your PPO uh, physician, your preferred provider organization physician, only for the first 30 days and then they can go to any physician they want. And what we really do see them doing is uh, going to the PPO for the first 30 days, and then as soon as they can depart off to the doctor who they know is going to keep them out of work forever, that's what they do. So it uh, ends up not being that useful. All right, Kim says, hey, Greg, can you explain the 130 weeks thing in more detail and what is really required? Okay, so this is great. So the law changed in 2017, uh, and it essentially said that after 130 weeks of temporary total disability, the employer, carrier, or insurer has the right to declare that credit for every additional week of disability after the 130th week where the claimant has reached MMI. And really what the legislature was doing there was they said, look, most people reach maximum medical improvement, like in the real world, in two and a half years. So after two and a half years, you're on temp. We're going to give the employer the right to argue that they should get a credit on that temp against any ultimate loss of wage earning capacity award that the claimant obtains. Now in practice, we haven't really seen that work, but it is a valid thing to bring up at that 130 week moment and try to transform or reduce your future exposure by the amount of ongoing temporary disability benefits. Now we've done entire webinars. In fact, I think there's a half a chapter in my book that's on that. So uh, I would ask you to look that up or um, you know, give me a ring and I can help explain to you how that can apply in your cases. All right, Jim says, Greg, can you discuss the role of an IME in a case with a traumatic brain injury? <laughs> See, I'm laughing already because uh, traumatic brain injury is like one of the, the happy throw-ins that go on in any kind of fall case nowadays. Um, how often do you conduct an IME at the beginning of the case, and how often do you conduct an IME when someone's been going through brain therapy for a while? It seems like it's a challenge in many cases to know when a patient has reached MMI, but it seems like it could be especially tricky if there is a brain injury that is being treated. Yeah, Jim, good question, okay? So I think traumatic brain injuries, and particularly the fact that they are currently kind of a throw-in, you know, we see these TBIs a lot. We see them in the context of construction accidents, any accident involving a fall from a height. All of a sudden, two years later, after the medical treatment's coming to a conclusion, now the person says, oh, wait, I had a loss of consciousness, and I have a TBI, and I need this brain therapy, which is really a lot of just junk science, in my opinion. I mean, there are some practitioners, I'll call them out, Dr. Jason Brown, this is junk science, this person 
um, is getting paid exorbitant amounts of money and he has claimants come to his office and they basically pay, play Tetris on a computer and that's their brain training. It's been a scam for a long time. TBI are really something you have to go after a hook and tongue. I think um, as much as you're IMEing the traumatic brain injury claimant, you should be surveilling them because this is just a ripe ground for fraud and stretching out these claims. So you gotta be very mindful about that. Now, are, do TBIs exist? Yes. Are they incredibly tough to diagnose and treat? Yes, because we don't know the claimant's neurocognitive functioning before the date of loss. I love these uh, uh, TBI claims where they say, oh, this person's functioning at an eighth grade reading level and he can barely, you know, he's, he's, he's basically illiterate and basically enumerate. I'm like, what were they before the loss? We don't know. Did they graduate high school? Or did they, what did they get in the SATs? There's nothing to compare it to. There's no pre-morbid comparison. There's no thing to, to really say. So when the person starts coming and says, I can't remember anything. I don't know where I am right now. And I, I think I have it. Look, it's just a list of complaints. It's really, these are really, really tough to diagnose and treat. And they have become real grounds for fraud and abuse in our system. Uh, unfortunately, the answers I have for you are not great, which is um, being a little bit more careful about that um, pre-injury uh, investigation. What was the person's pre-morbid neurocognitive state? And then post. I mean, I had a case where the person claimed a traumatic brain injury. They had, again, Dr. Jason Brown testifying he could barely work. And I said in court, hey, show me your driver's license. And, you know, in New York, our driver's licenses um, show all of our um, additional credentials on them. And he had a, a, a recently renewed driver's license with a bow hunting uh, and a boat, a bow hunting license, a black powder license and a, a boat certificate, a, a boat endorsement. I said, so let me get this straight. You've got a traumatic brain injury. You can't remember where you are but you're spending time in the woods by yourself with a black powder rifle for hours and hours going after deer. Do these things compute? So you really got to come at those cases, I think, like orthogonally, like from the side, you've got to like attack them on everything else. And it's particularly the activities of daily living. So that's a long answer. As you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about these TBI cases because I see my clients just getting taken advantage of in these types of instances. All right, Cheryl says, Greg, fact or fiction? Carrier must wait 60 days between IMEs. No, that's fiction that there's no law or rule that says that yeah if you're getting IMEs quicker than that is the doc is the judge going to say you're doctor shopping Mr. Lois yeah I am doctor shopping yes maybe and there, but there could be valid reasons right where the IME physician says come back in 30 days or, or complete the treatment and come back to me okay there'd be a reason to do it how about where my IME physician has retired right or or maybe it's a different specialist. I think there are good reasons to do it, so I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. That's a fiction, it's not true. Um, Lisa says, Greg, how often do you recommend surveillance be done? Is that maybe the only solution to competing medical opinions? Uh, as often as possible. You know, I give an entire presentation on surveillance because I believe strongly in it, right? It's one of the, you, you are in a workers' compensation system that is indifferent to you, employer. They don't care about you. You're in a workers' compensation system that is hostile to you. That the, Under Section 21, every presumption goes to the claimant. And what we want to do in, when we're defending a case is come into the court with some reality. And unfortunately, covert surveillance is many times the only reality that we can bring in that say, hey, judge, you see this person who disclaimed that they can't do anything? They lied to you, judge. Here's the video. No one likes being lied to. So even in the hostile and different workers' compensation system, the judges do not like people who lack integrity. And so for that reason, I think credibility should be raised often and should be tested. Uh, I don't give people the benefit of the doubt, unless you're in my family, then I do. All right. Teresa says, Greg, if the IME places the claimant at MMI with no need to further treat, what is your opinion or recommendations regarding the carrier denying future treatment requests and having level twos, et cetera, speak to the same treatment requests? If the IME report is relatively recent, should not the IME report hold more weight with the level two being redundant? Okay, so Teresa, now we're starting to talk about the fun of the PAR system, which again, you wanna talk about hostile, indifferent, doesn't make a ton of sense, the answer is in the PAR system, you are required to go to a level two review, even if you've already had a very comprehensive IME done just weeks prior. So in order to truly in, um, make sure that you are covered, my advice to you would be to follow the recommendations or the pathway inside the PAR system, which would be to get that level two. 
Um, Cheryl says, Greg, medical record reviews, if we are going to use them, do they follow the same requirement having to be sent to all parties within 10 days of the review? No, that's what's great about um, medical records reviews, and I forgot to mention it. What's great about medical record reviews is you don't, you can keep them in your back pocket, but you do have to reveal them to all parties three days prior to the hearing that's going to take place because you're contradicting the medical. So much more flexibility, much more flexibility. Keep that in your back pocket, choose to use it, not to use it, and then up to three days before the proceeding, then you have to share it with all parties. So again, uh, and, and in that time, can you get multiple record reviews? not review all the ones that you don't want to present and just present the one you do? Absolutely, okay, so much more flexible. All right, last question from Lauren. Hey, Greg, should we be proactive in scheduling IME to comment on body parts we have not voluntarily accepted, or is it best to wait for the law judge to find PFME and order us to get an IME? All right, so I think if you're getting an IME, you're hoping and expecting the doctor to comment at least on the contralateral side. You know, if the doctor's evaluating a right shoulder, you're expecting them to say, oh, I also did a range of motion testing on the left side, which you can use later on to eliminate any of those complaints. But this is where a good questionnaire is useful. Do you have any other injuries, any other body parts? Is there anything else you're claiming is injured? Are you seeing any other doctors? This is why you want to have that uh, questionnaire so that later when they try to bring in more and more body parts, you can say, look, Miami asked them about this and they said they didn't have any other injuries and judge this should be precluded. So, you know, uh, being thoughtful, um, being prophylactic, being protective, uh, getting an IME um, before they get medical evidence of anything, I would generally not do. Uh, you run the risk of creating the prima facie, the medical evidence, the PFME, which will then form the basis for their case. So just be very thoughtful about that, be careful. In general, I do not recommend clients get prophylactic uh, or preventative IMEs. Uh, I generally would say, look, if you're going to get one anyway, have them comment on other body parts, have them fill out that full questionnaire. But generally speaking, I don't want to run the risk of potentially creating the medical evidence, which I'm going to have to later either refute, preclude, challenge, or spend money, time, blood, and treasure to refute in court. All right, that's the last question. This went almost an hour, but this is fun. Uh, we still have most of the people who started with us, so that was great. Thanks for joining. Uh, next week, June 26th through June 29th, we have our invitation only, uh, eight hour long workers' compensation training course. I'm going through New York workers' compensation from soup to nuts, really from the beginning of a case, uh, all the way to how we close cases, settle cases, and then even things we consider after that settlement has been perfected, what do we do next? Uh, if you're interested in that, please join me in that. That is intended to be, it starts off as a workers' comp 101 and it ends with graduate school of workers' compensation and really goes through everything that we do. Um, we have a number of new attorneys and paralegals starting here at Lois Law Firm next week. And so you'll have the opportunity to sit on the class that I teach because I onboard every single attorney. I train every attorney that works here. They spend the first week of them of their employment with me in a room talking about workers' compensation. And we're inviting clients into that now. So you're invited to come in. It is a three-day long workers' compensation training course. It is led by yours truly. So if you like me, you'll love it. If you hate me, don't come. Uh, we already have about 100 people signed up for that. So if you're interested, um, please join us. All right, everybody. This went pretty long, but I thought it was a lot of fun. At least I'm having a good time. I hope everyone has a great week and a great uh, rest of your month. And I'll see you next time. Bye.